Hey everybody, welcome to Row Hunting Resources Podcast. All right, um, we are entering into the month of April and then into May. So that means it's hunting season out here, folks. So uh, the relevant point behind that is um, I obviously I'm going to still do the podcast. I'm going to still make sure that I got something out there every Monday for you. However, we may or may not have these three-hour, four-hour epic marathons on discussions uh, over these next several weeks because I am going to be busting my butt trying to make sure that our hunts go well and that we have opportunities for our hunters. I've got, uh, so the first group that we've got coming in is coming in on uh, Wednesday night, on Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Got a dad and his two kids. Um, and then next week after that I've got another group of three coming in Um, and then after that I'm going to be playing it by ear and that is kind of a yeah really didn't even know I mean uh, as usual I've got a stack of topics and notes and things that I'd love to talk about but um, again I can't be it's Sunday night again I just got done trying to roost or roosting some birds been working all weekend, uh, getting stuff out on the landscape, but yeah, I've just been busting my butt these past several days getting things set up, so I have not been able to take the time to sit down and record a more in-depth or more detailed version of this podcast, and I know I have a, I told you I was going to try to get somebody lined up um, as a guest, I've not forgotten about them, I'm going to reach out to them probably, um, not next week, but probably the week after that, I'll have some time. But anyway, I'm sorry. I'm rambling, I know. Relevant point. I'm going to be busy. Um, so the longer ones will probably uh, probably come towards the end of the month. So this one and next week's podcast might be a little shorter. Um, so for today's podcast, well, let me just kind of give you guys a heads up. Anybody that's planning on coming out to hunt in northwest Kansas, my recommendation so far, what I'm seeing... Um, don't buy your second game tag. Not yet, anyway. So, for some reason, Kansas is still allowing people in the northwest part of the state, at least, to purchase two turkey tags. According to the state, you know, oh, we got plenty of birds. You're full of shit. There are pockets where there's still a good number of birds, but um, in other places where there's normally a bunch of birds, we don't have a bunch of birds. Um... I'm thankful that I have landowners that have been have have remained committed to doing the habitat stuff that we have been. Because um, I sat and powwowed with a couple of them this weekend as well, because they've been seeing the same things, and and we're getting a game plan for what we want to move forward and do for 2022. Because if we had not been doing the things that we've been doing, I, well, you can see it on the landscape. Um, number Turkey numbers are, are down. There's, there's just no two ways about it. The turkey numbers are down. Now, for the past several years, I have limited all of my hunters to one bird each, and there's been a few exceptions. But I've limited all of our, our hunts to just one bird. Um, that way, because you know, the demand for, for the row hunting resources guided to turkey hunts out here is remained um very high which i'm very grateful for very thankful for that 
Um, and I want to try to get as many people out here and experience a really fun turkey hunt and, and an educational turkey hunt where we're going to learn about, you know, habitat and, and why the birds roost where they do and how they have those their their daily cycles and, and where they go during different wind patterns and, and weather systems and setting up decoys during the different phases of the breeding season and you know working calls and the whole nine yards if you want to learn how to be a better turkey hunter that's the whole point behind what I do um, so I want to make sure that we you know I, I want to have as many people out here as possible hunting it number one number two responsibly that is and number two we i we've got uh several families that come out and they you know or people that want to bring their kids and and first-time hunters which i love taking so um and i said that responsibly because in the past uh, still to this day i really look at the i spend a lot of time i live here so i'm on the landscape constantly i run game cameras year round and this is one of those situations where yes we're gonna have another conversation with game cameras uh coming up uh, well just equipment in general but i'm gonna this is flat out where i i personally find value to having game cameras and running game cameras uh year round because i can better inventory what we have and i can see trends and i can see different movement cycles and so um Our numbers have been on a downward trend these past number of years. Now, last year we did have a good, uh, it seems like we had good nest success. And so we had a lot more young poults running around. And I know that we have a bunch of jakes running around. So, uh, you know, it's fine. To, I mean, it's legal as long as it, you know, out here it's legal to shoot a jake. It's legal to shoot any bird that has a visible beard. All right. Um I'd rather not shoot a Jake, but if a kid wants to, you know, if it's a first timer or if it's a kid that wants to shoot a Jake, go for it. You know, it's a legal bird and it's fun. Go for it. So I know we've got a bunch of Jakes running around. And so barring anything catastrophic this year, and I'm going to get to the weather here in a second, but barring anything catastrophic, hopefully we'll have a really good 2023 season. Just there should be a bunch of two-year-old birds running around. And fingers crossed, we have a good nest success, hatch success and nest su success this year. Um, but we shall see. The drought last year did not help us, I don't think. And this this winter, it just there's just so many things just conspiring to whittle away at our historic numbers. And again, you know, when we look back on when we st when I started, just you know, I go back to when I first started hunting out in Kansas long time ago man it was it was incredible i mean incredible in many places um and i you know even even up here talk with my neighbors you know years before i even moved out here you know them talking about you know a flock of 300 plus birds walking across the highway shutting down traffic because the birds just they were just just walking here they go just shuttling across and i mean they had to just sat and wait for this entire massive flock of turkeys just to move through and literally you could drive down any back road and i could think of numerous parcels around here you could drive down almost any back road that had uh any sort of trees 
any sort of brushy pocket or anything like that. And again, back that day, those days, it was winter wheat. Man, you drove around in the spring anywhere that there was a winter wheat field next to any sort of tree corridor, birds. Like here's a flock of of ten to thirty plus with multiple gobblers out there, and I mean they were everywhere. They were everywhere. It was fun, man. I mean, you can go back to my earlier YouTube videos, um, through the seasons videos on our turkey hunts. And I'm thinking of one with Steve Fernandez that, you know, the people complained that I was calling too much and I was just cranking. Yeah, the reason why I was calling as much as I was, and I talk about that in the video, is I don't remember what it was, 30, 50 birds. I don't remember what the what the birds were that were at the roost. There was just, and there was, I don't know how many freaking gobblers in that. There's no... I had to, I had to, I, there was, they were so loud talking and gobbling and, it, you know, hens yelping and the gobblers going and they were out in the field and they were going, doing their own thing that I, I had to do something to compete and draw the attention of at least a couple gobblers to get them to move our way. So we'd at least have a, a play because otherwise that entire flock was just going to move off and, and go their own direction. So, um, just massive, enough, just, just piles and piles of birds and, you know, even several years ago, you know, setting up and having five, six, eight different gobblers coming in in one big flock on there. Well, it's just every year it just seems like we get fewer and fewer and fewer to where now I'm driving around, I'm looking um, on our properties. We still have our birds because um, we still have, We, I mean, I spend a lot of time and a lot of effort making sure that they've got food and, um, well, and now water. Um but you drive around some other places, and there and there's places where I historically used to see birds constantly. I haven't seen a bird out there in three plus four years. Um, and then some of the other places where you drive down the road, well, and and I mean, heck, there's some river bottoms where I'll sit in the spring and monitor. I can get up on hilltops and I can listen to, you know, several miles of a river bottom. I can. There's one of ours that's part of a complex of of properties that. You know, we used to have a solid four different roosts along uh, probably about a three to four mile stretch of the river bottom. And, you know, depending on where you parked and when where you listened, you could get up on top of the hill and you could hear, you know, a long, long way. And not only were there four different roost spots, that in each of those roosts were multiple mature birds. And that's just four on, uh, the river bottom, but there's three peripheral, uh, roosts, um, north or south of that river bottom by several miles. So you could get out on some of these hilltops and sit in the spring and just listen to them. And they're just rocking. Every roost is rocking. Every roost has multiple gobblers in it, just going nuts. Well, one of these river bottoms now, um, we're down to one roost. I mean, we're, we're down, we're down to one roost, um, uh, on the river bottom. All right. Well, I, well, no, to be honest, now two, two, uh, one at one on either extreme end, uh, the North peripheral group that's been gone for years. Uh, the South peripheral South group, um, one flock is now down to single digit birds the other flock i don't know uh you can't you can't see into it to um monitor it so i don't know how many birds are over there but we are greatly reduced 
there's a lot of reasons for it, and and that's what I pro- that's one of the things that I want to tackle here. Um, probably as we phase out of of the our either our hunts this spring or as season moves on, I'll I'll, I'll address it because I want to see how things progress this season. Um, these past couple of years, early season has been really really tough, and which is which is weird. Um, it didn't used to be that way, so. I used to always hunt, jump into Nebraska and go with a buddy of mine uh, and hunt in Nebraska March 25th, 26th, and 27th and just have a have a blast. And we'd go home, regroup for a couple days, and then, you know, Kurt and I or Kurt, John, and I would come to Kansas April 1st through whenever we could. You know, I would most likely be out there for like five days or something like that or a week. But we'd hit... April 1st, back when the adult archery season kicked off on April 1st. And it was just epic. Epic. Well, these past couple of years, our early hunts have just been a grind. I mean, like, difficult to get birds to actually want to come and play. To where it's actually gotten better as the month of April went on. And then in the past, again, it started early. Uh, the, the, the good breeding activity and the and the decoying activity and all that started April 1st and it was just rocking and rolling through the month of April. But by the time you got to May, there was times I just shut everything down. I didn't even, there was, in the early days, I didn't even book a hunt in May because it was pointless. It was worthless because all the hens were bred. They were off on nests. The gobblers had gone through that second round of looking for hens. And by the beginning of May, like the first week of May, they were done. They were on their summer group. They were grouping back up into bachelor groups. They were on their summer mode. And it did not matter. They didn't pay attention to you at all. Fast forward now, what do we have? We've got strutting, gobbling, and, and gobblers with hens all the way out to May 31st. I've watched them the first week of June sitting out in fields, strutting, gobbling in the morning, out there with hens all day. Um, it, it's We've got massive habitat changes, uh, and especially the crop. The crop changes that we have going on out here these days have really conspired to make a massive change in the landscape. Um, I'm going to talk, again, I'm going to dive into some more details. And the, and the reason why I don't want to dive into too many details now is because I just I had a conversation with one of the landowners and I wanted to have a comprehensive discussion with him on, you know, what's what are the what have the trends of cattle been these past 10, 15 years? Um, I know some of what the, the trends and the crops have been, but I haven't seen I, I don't know. I'm not as versed in the cattle trends and especially for their operation long term. And so I wanted to get some details on that. Um, and then I wanted to get some details on ethanol out here because I think that has played a big, uh, the ethanol plant and the, the big push for ethanol in many places, I think has led to some of what we're seeing with just corn going everywhere. But, um, I've, I've talked about this in the past that this area used to be wheat country, winter wheat, winter wheat, winter wheat, winter wheat. Uh, one of the primary landowners I work with, his crop rotation was wheat, then another year of wheat, followed up with a year of corn, followed up with a year of soybeans, and then he'd rotate. Wheat, wheat, corn, soybean. Wheat, wheat, corn, soybean. Wheat, wheat, corn, soybean. So wheat was at least half of a four-year cycle, 
And quite honestly, if you looked at where his wheat fields were, a lot of times they were in some of the best river bottom um, tree corridor type habitats. And I've talked about winter wheat all the time. I will always sing the praises of winter wheat out here. Winter wheat is king. Magic green carpet, baby. That is highly palatable, highly digestible, highly desired, high protein in it from when it pops out of the ground in September all the way until it just starts getting too tall, you know, four to six inches. Once it starts getting really longer leafy material, probably even probably six to nine inches um, it maintains that high, high palatability, high digestibility, high protein. So deer and turkeys have really great forage resources for the better part of nine months. Let's see, middle of September to, to October, November, December, January, February, March, April, mid-April. I would even, so that's seven months. I would even put it seven and a half to eight months of good, forage potential just just from the green vegetation itself then you've got all of the microhabitat underneath it in and around it where you've got you know um all the little bugs that are underneath there and picking and you know scratching through all the you know the worms and everything else underneath all that vegetation where it's especially if it's damp especially when we had good moisture cycles out here and then i really think for turkeys the reason why we had such great uh, turkey populations back in the day was if you look at the height, especially when we were back and we had good moisture, good spring moisture. If you look back in the day when you got towards end of April, that wheat would be 12 to 18 inches tall. And like legitimately, or heck, I, I remember no joke, I remember end of April, winter wheat, that it was difficult to see the turkeys moving through it. You, you just see their heads. I mean, it was deep, deep, lush wheat. Well, the beautiful thing about that is, is the hens, turkeys love to nest out in those wheat fields because they can just flat out vanish in these hundreds of acres, 80, well, 80 acre plus fields where you don't have coyotes cruising through, you don't have the raccoons cruising through. You think about it, they get out there. Um, and what I, I shared with you, uh, last year, I was doing weed management out in a winter wheat, uh, food plot on one of my friend's properties and literally drove over strat. I can't believe I straddled it, but just like drove over the top of a hen on her nest, just tucked in, buried underneath all that wheat. So they've got good lateral cover. They've got good overhead cover. They just, they just burrow themselves in this just sea of tall grass where the scent, you know, obviously nothing can see them from above. Nothing can see them as they're going through. But more importantly, as the, as that wheat gets tall, any scent of that bird, if it's going to waft out of there, it's going to basically waft up. It's going to have to leave the area around the nest, rise up above the wheat, and then get carried on the wind uh, that's blowing over the top of that wheat. By the time it gets out to any field edge where a coyote or a raccoon or any other predator or nest predator is going to smell it, it's so diluted and it's so difficult to, to follow that 
the nest just disappears. The scent signature of that nest just flat disappears. We just don't have the wheat on the landscape like we used to in many areas. And, I, and this is whether you're talking, um, you're, you're going to be hunting out, you know, for those that you're planning on coming out to Kansas, um, regardless of whether you're talking about hunting on, you know, private property or hunting and walk-in access or hunting on state land. Now, state land is a little different because they manage a lot of those crop fields in there for wildlife. So a lot of them have maintained uh, some of their crop rotation and some of the habitat quality and, and the birds are still doing pretty good there. But everybody and their brother's uncle piling in on small chunks of state land, it, it, you're, it is what it is. But um, for us out here, I've kind of noticed that the birds, it's almost like they're getting, it's almost like some of the birds, and I and I have to believe this just on based on the age, how many years we've been losing our winter wheat fields and the age of the birds that, you know, would be still surviving. It's like we're getting to the point where some of our turkeys have forgotten where they normally would walk and, and normally rotate through and where they would normally go to nest. Um, because now it's just corn stubble, bean stubble, year after year after year. I think my landowner, my, my primary landowner right now, or one, of, one of the primary landowners that I have, I'm working with right now. Well, let me rephrase that. The one landowner that used to run wheat now runs a corn, corn, bean, bean rotation. And every, and he just throws in a handful of wheat fields from here and, you know, here, there, just because he, he always wants to have a little bit of wheat, you know, and I'm talking like probably 10% of his operation, maybe, but he likes to still have a little bit of wheat, but the vast majority of his more productive fields are, are a bean, bean, corn, corn, bean, bean, corn, corn rotation. The other landowner that I work with, uh, they very rarely do wheat ever. It's just corn, beans, corn, beans, corn, beans, and then there might be Milo, and that's what's going to happen this year. Some of the property there, just because it's been so dry, we are sitting in, we're still sitting in the classification of a severe drought for our area. And still to this day, looking at the, I just, before I kicked this off, I, I started looking at the long-term forecast and we still have no change until July. We are supposed to be slightly above normal in our temperatures, um, although that's conflicting. I, I was looking at a couple different things, and, and we may either be average or, or slightly above average on our temperatures. But everybody, all the long-term forecasts, forecasts are consistent in that we are going to be at least a couple to few several inches below average on our moisture, right on through. So some of our landowners are going to be uh, putting in uh, a bunch of more Milo, which is a grain sorghum, basically, uh, just because that's so much more drought tolerant. Um, so the relative point behind all that was um, when I'm talking about the changes we've seen with the turkey population on the landscape, in the past when we had a lot of that wheat everywhere, turkeys could go anywhere and stumble upon a good wheat field. And they learned, I truly believe, learned that they that was a great place to nest or at the very least even if they were you know depending on the the research you you know turkey research you look at you know some people say that turkeys are just lucky to be alive how stupid they are as far as their nesting places and 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 you know the the odds of being successful other people claim that you know or have 
believe that turkeys are a little bit more smart about how they choose their nest sites. But regardless, turkeys could wander around the landscape and stumble onto a wheat field somewhere out there and, and lay a nest, you know, have a nest and, and probably hatch that thing. And, and because of, of the habitat that was around there, um, do well, at least have a high percentage of their, of their poults survive or at least a, a, a fair percentage percentage to where we had a growing high level of uh, turkeys on the landscape. But once we started moving away and, and they could get, they could lay their eggs and start their nests in deep wheat stubble in April to where by the time they got a full clutch at the end of April, they were sitting on that nest. And by the time we're talking about the beginning of May, that wheat is very tall, growing gangbusters. The hens are no more. They're they're on their nest. The gobblers are on their own. And okay, breeding's done. Time to group back up, boys, and go around. You know, on our merry way. Well, now because we don't have that wheat in a crop. Now again, we're taught you will find pockets of it. I'm not arguing that you can't find a green wheat field somewhere. But remember, look at the volume that you used to have. Same thing with alfalfa in a lot of places. We don't have a lot of alfalfa in a lot of places like we used to. Alfalfa was similar in the fact that by the time you got to end of April, you started having, you know, vegetative growth deep enough to where you could have a turkey nest in that and and she could disappear. Um but you could have but now that we don't have that land that large landscape scale, you know, wheat component. And this is the big again, see there's so much to talk about because there's so many and this is do not okay. I don't want people to think I'm frustrated. I'm not frustrated with you. And I'm sorry, my, my brain's going down a rabbit hole. So I've been fielding a bunch of calls lately, and I'm glad, I'm happy, because I want to do this for folks. So if you own land out here, if you lease ground out here, if you just knock on a door and you get permission, or you have friendly, you know, friends and family out here that you hunt on, and you want to do some habitat work, give me a call. All right? It, you, you need to do it right and do it right the first time. So I, I, uh, I'm just going to leave it at that for right now. There's a you can watch a lot of stuff on YouTube and you can watch a lot of and I'm going to share some video of this here coming up. You know, people are talking about oh, you know, just, you know, till the ground or scratch, you know, you know, disc the ground or whatever and let the native stuff come in. <laughs> yeah, don't do that. Not out here. Don't don't do that not out here. Because you're not going native vegetation. There is there is no quality native vegetation. That's we're on the again. Remember, we're on the fringe edge of what was suitable habitat historically, because of the nature of of you know the moisture that we have out here. We are again we're you're, we're in a we're in a zone that has twenty to twenty four inches of annual precipitation. That's it. Okay. So some of these places where you hear people talk about all oh, you know you know you know, cut the trees down or hinge cut the trees, let the, for, you know, sunlight hit the forest floor, you know, and, and so you can have more native forbs and stuff come in. What? No, we have long, in many areas, we're talking about long linear corridors and they're, they're waterways. And some of these waterways are just old waterways that were planted to brome to stable, stabilize soil. And then over time, trees have come in that those, out here we call it, you know, most landers call it waste ground. You know, those 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 creek beds and those creek corridors and those little drainage swales that always eroded out. And, you know, in the 
a long, long time ago, somebody, you know, some people had plowed those up and dissed them under and, and tried to grow stuff on it. Well, it didn't work. So what do they do? They go back in on those waterways, those drainage corridors. They planted brome, smooth brome. Why? Because smooth brome creates a just a mat of sod that holds soil very, very well. And it will choke out almost anything that, that wants to try to grow in it, unless it gets disturbed, of course. But then over time, slowly but surely, you know, because it's quote-unquote waste ground, the farmers aren't using it. They just kind of ignore it. Over time, you get trees popping up there, and that's how we end up having some of these little fingers and ribbons of trees out in the native, you know, what used to be all this tall grass, mid-grass prairie out here. All right? So it's a disturbed landscape historically, hundreds of, you know, going back a hundred plus years. Well, you, you've got brome under there. You let the sunlight hit the forest floor. What are you going to do? You're going to grow more brome. All right. So you say, okay, well, I'm going to go in there. I'm going to disc it up. I'm, I'm going to disturb the soil and disc it up. What are you going to do? You're going to stimulate brome. And maybe what you're going to do is incorporate some hemp seed, some Russian thistle, some velvet leaf, some kochia, herbicide-resistant now amaranth, spiny amaranth. That's the weeds you're going to get. If you're lucky, you'll get lamb's quarters. And don't even get me started on, you know, people who tell, oh, you know, uh, um, ragweed. Yeah, there's multiple, there's a bunch of different ragweeds out there. Not all ragweeds created equal. I can show you patches of ragweed out here next to my food plots that there's not a browse mark on any of that ragweed. But I walk out in my food plot and there may be a Russian thistle popping up. There might be a lamb's quarter popping up. Hell, there's a piece of, there, there's a, a annual kochia popping up and the tops will be chewed off of those. So not all ragweeds created equal. So all of you people that are sitting there watching YouTube and watching all these, these other people talking about habitat. Yes, you you can pick up a lot of good information off of them, but that's not this country, man. And so there, there's, a, I, I, I finally just started joking. I mean, just laughing about it. Cause I talked to a couple of people recently. I'm going to start doing some habitat stuff more with them. Um, you know, I just kind of tongue in cheek joked with them. I'm like, there's a reason I didn't spend $13,000 on a no-till drill simply because it was the sexy, cool thing to do. <laughs> I, I spent the money on a no-till drill because that's the only machine that literally made food plotting out here functional, efficient. But anyway, um, we just, yeah. There's, so that, that's a massive conversation in itself. But Sorry, I digressed. I got on a I got on a side point there. But my so going back, so we don't have the wheat on the landscape anymore. Now, with going to corn, with going to beans, because we have more herbicide resistant weeds showing up on the landscape, most everybody out here is doing no-till farming, which is great for soil moisture. It, it I mean, it's a great methodology of farming because it makes high. Uh, high efficiency and high use of and, and conserves soil moisture because you're not disturbing that soil profile. It makes farming out here so much more efficient. 
and we can produce more food on the landscape, corn, soybean, wheat, whatever you want to plant, we can produce more of it more efficiently with a no-till system. But with the no-till system, you still have weeds, you still have competition where, okay, now a lot of landowners are and ag producers are going to a lot of pre-emergent herbicides because some of these weeds that are coming in like spiny amaranth, like some of the koshas, um, velvet leaf and some, you know, they're, once they pop and once they start getting a few inches of growth on them, it's almost impossible to control them after that in your field. And it, it can become a problem in your ag field. And so a lot of landowners out here are using pre-emergent herbicides, which means it, it, as soon as a, a broadleaf weed germinates, that weak little seedling cannot handle this herbicide that's in the soil profile and it just kills it. And certain crops are immune to that herbicide. And so basically it kills all the weeds before they even pop or as they initially pop. And then it just keeps the soil bare, clean, quote unquote. So that way when the the temperature, the, the soil temperature is warm enough and there's enough moisture there, they can come in and drill their summer crops, the corn, the milo, the beans or whatever, and they don't have a weed competition issue that's just going to choke out that field. But what does that mean? That means that field is either in crop growing in the summer, usually planting, you know, corn, a lot of, you know, corn, depends what it, it doesn't matter. Some, are, some crops, if it's warm enough in April, they'll start planting it in mid-April right on through the beginning of May. That's when they're getting a lot of crops in and then maybe the milo is coming after because milo can handle the hot, dry. So, hell, you'll be putting in milo May and June. But, or, and then cane and, and you know, sedan grasses and cattle feed and that that's the other aspect out here. So, there's no weed cover, really. There's very little stubble. We've got people running cattle on corn stalks to where even the corn stalks and the corn that's out in the field, the cattle are out there cleaning up a, a bunch of it. Um, so by the time a hand, oh, that, what I was getting at is uh, we're out in long skinny corridors. We're, we're in these, you know, narrow corridors on the landscape. Yes. You can find these pockets of brushy stuff, you know, you know, scattered out randomly across the landscape, but they're, they're relatively small pockets. If you listen to the people talking about, and, and there's been a number of good podcasts lately talking about, and, and biologists talking about how coyotes hunt across the landscape and how raccoons move across the landscape. And I'm going to get some people on. We're going to have those conversations as well. They are they they course across the landscape using their nose. And as soon as they smell something in the wind that smells like food, they just go after it. They, they'll just head in after it. Well, if you look at how they move across the landscapes, those long linear corridors are exceptionally efficient at covering a lot of ground and covering a lot of ground on the, you know, as far as linearly, but covering a lot of ground with your nose, you can smell a lot. So if the birds only for, if turkeys only have nesting cover in these small, narrow corridors, or, or even if they're a larger corridor, but there's relatively low amounts of, of cover in there. Again, a lot of, again, underneath the trees out here, a lot of it was originally, or a lot of it has been, brome. 
So you might have some deadfall and, and brome, or and now because of the flooding we had several years ago, cheatgrass is going gangbusters everywhere. So now even if you have brome, if it's not brome, it's in cheatgrass, which doesn't get very high. That doesn't provide any cover. Um, we've got snowberry patches, and we've got some remnant, you know, in some of these corridors. You'll still have some tall grass, you know, the switch grasses and the big blue stems, the little blue stems, that type of stuff, Indian grass in there as well. But in some of these corridors, it's mostly brome, not a lot of overhead cover or lateral cover. Um, so there's not a lot to hide in, and there's not a lot to hide in. And even if you try to hide, the scent of that nest is going to move across that landscape very easily, and it's going to be very easy to detect and for a predator to pick up on. So when we move away from these big landscape scale winter wheat systems, the birds have really limited cover in which to nest in early. And I think that's part of the reason why, and everybody out here knows, raccoons are at plague proportions right now. It's insane. I sat tonight listening to roost birds, watching in broad daylight the raccoons coming out of the river bottom. And they're, literally, they're, eat, they're out there grazing, just munching green grass like little bears. Like They were like little spring bears, like, I could have picked, if it would have been a bear, I would have said, ah, oh, we're in Southeast Alaska and here's a, here's a black bear coming out and eating the spring, you know, new spring growth. No, they're just freaking fat raccoons walking out broad daylight while the deer are coming out. They're just out there munching wheat, munching it down. Raccoons are plague proportions. So, and then we know we've got coyotes running everywhere as well. So any raccoon walking around along the landscape in late April if a turkey is trying to have a you know lay a, a nest, it's easy to detect. It's easy to just rape and pillage, and so I think that's why we've seen the extension of turkey see you know the turkey behavior and our effective you know turkey hunts go all the way in through May. And I mean, literally these past couple of years, we've had successful hunts all the way at May thirty first, the the last day of of turkey season. And a lot of times that I've been killed, you know, if I, if we have enough birds on the landscape and I've chosen to fill my tag, most of the time, almost every time I'm going to wait until, um, unless there's just a pile of birds, I'm going to wait until all of our hunters are done. And then I might choose to shoot my bird. Well, heck the past couple of years, if I've shot my bird, it's been late May and the birds have been working calls. The birds been out strutting and going, carrying on. Why? Because I think the hens are just getting their nests raided so frequently they keep re-nesting, 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 re-nesting. And I think they finally have a successful nest attempt later on in May and early June. And I can attest to this for just based on pictures of poults and the size of poults and then me doing habitat work down in the creek bottoms and river bottoms and, and finding poults that are just barely able to fly, about 10-day-old poults. And then those poults, I mean, um, this is, you know, end of July there. Heck, I've talked about this in the past where I've had, I've kicked up a hen with poults. The poults were barely able to get up in the low lying branches, uh, surrounding, you know, where we, where I flushed them, the beginning of August. So that nest hatched at the end of July, like the very end of July which means she laid that, she she was laying eggs middle of June, started sitting on that nest the beginning of July. That's horrible, man. 
But I think the reason why they're they're finally finding success that late in the year is because, like last year, it was dry, and it was well we did, it was it was we, we had some good spring moisture. Don't get me wrong, but it was dry enough in the spring last year, and warm enough where a lot of the landowners were able to get their corn in early. I was. I was able to get my corn in as early as I've ever gotten my corn in, and it freaking did awesome. Like, seriously awesome. I had the best corn food plots I've ever planted in my life because I was able to get it in early, and it got really good initial growth before it started getting hot, so the deer didn't just rape and pillage it. Uh, That's a different discussion. But the corn starts growing, the beans get in the ground, they start growing, you get about a month to six weeks of growth on that. Now you've got some overhead cover. Now you've got some lateral cover. Now they can go way out in the middle of nowhere ag field, a bean field or corn field, and they can actually scrape out a little shallow dish and and start laying a uh, nest. And it's, again, the scent is not going to travel across that landscape as efficiently. Hawks can't see them. Coons, you know, they're not out in the middle of those fields. The, the, um, coyotes aren't out in the middle of those fields wandering around. So now they finally have some success on those nests. I think that's part of the reason why they're, we're having so much later nesting. The the catch-22 on that, though, is, number one, those, those fields underneath all that stubble, there's not a lot there. That late in the season, we, we get a period where in June, in beginning of July, we don't have oftentimes a lot of rain. We'll, we'll get good rain in April. We might get some good rain in May. But then all of a sudden, it's like, some, you know, good Lord just turns the faucet off in June and July, and we don't get squat. Now, we'll get those thunderstorms come through, but keep in mind, a thunderstorm dumps rain where the thunderstorm's traveling over. I five minutes up the road might get three inches of rain out of that rainstorm and I get zero. So the thunderstorms are very fickle on where they drop rain. But if we get a lot, you know, if we get a really good monsoon flow and we're getting thunderstorms and big rainstorms coming through each night or every few nights, okay, that's a different story. But for a couple months there, it really seems like the rain gets turned off and the moisture gets turned off. And that's when we get the heat. So now you get hot, so those poults hatch right about the time where it gets really hot and really dry. And they're tiny little buggers, okay? They need juicy bugs, okay? They need juicy stuff to to pick at and eat to start their little life. Because they're hatching later, I think we have less survivability. Let's just forget predators a minute. And that, okay... Okay, so this is going to be a dub. This was another one I wanted to go in, and I was like, "Holy freaking hell!" I, I don't have time to go down that rabbit hole because I'm I'm really my patience is starting to wear thin on hearing people just absolute abject dismiss predators being an issue with turkey. Oh no, it's all its habitat. It's always habitat. It's always that. Yeah, if and I'm going to start calling it Pollyanna wildlife management. If we want to live in Pollyanna world where the unicorns fart skittles as they frolic under rainbows every day, chasing butterflies, eating little gumdrops. Okay, well, okay, maybe we can live in that fantasy land. But again, I was just talking with my landowner. I'm like, some of these people 
they, they sit there and they, they talk about habitat, 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 habitat. Okay, that's fine. I tell you what, how about you shit in one hand and wish for habitat improvements on the other and you tell me which one fills up first. And, and we're going to go down the rabbit hole of, number one, man, this is coming up. I've, I've got the notes for it. I don't have time for it tonight. Uh, we're going to talk about habitat stuff, even more than what I've talked about now. And, and the challenges this country has, this portion of the country, and, and this is why I've, I've started talking about my whitetail stuff with Western Plains Whitetails. The, the full name of that, that thread is Western Plains Whitetails and Wildlife. And, and that's going to be kind of what I, I couch some of the, uh, the future of, of the website and the deer and turkey module under, Western Plains Whitetails and Wildlife. Because the, the world we have out here in Western Plains is not Eastern Kansas. It is not Missouri. It's not Iowa. It's not Illinois. It's not Tennessee. It's not Pennsylvania. It's not Wisconsin. I'm sorry. It's not. And so the, the, the challenges we have just, I'm not, let's just skip for a minute. The moisture, our good years are let our good moisture years are less than the drought years in some of these other States. Okay. Does that make sense? Missouri can be talking about being in a severe drought and they're still getting 10 inches more rain than we are on a good year. See, it's, it's not the same environment. Temperatures, days of heat with just stupidly dry, nasty winds blowing across the landscape. It's, it's completely different. And then we're talking about crop structure. Well, ag, the way that ag and pasture land, and so we got ag ground, tillable ag ground, you've got pasture ground, and then we have what's called essentially waste ground. Those three things and waste ground for us is the wildlife habitat 99.9% of the time. All right. So you've got crop, you've got pasture, you've got wildlife habitat. I'm sorry. There are massive physical limitations and cultural limitations on what we can do, economic limitations on what we can do to actually increase habitat on the landscape. Which then leads me into the discussion of the predator management. Okay, well, if you if we, we go ahead, shit in one hand, wish for good habitat in the other, and then just see which fills up. But in the meantime, what's plan B? If if we can't move the needle on a landscape scale on habitat, what what's what's plan B? Nothing. Throw our hands up, walk away. What's the state supposed to do? Just stop selling licenses? Let alone people like me. I, I mean, I I'm a small operation, and my and the the operation that we are running here for us is supplemental for our landowners. So I can adjust our hunts that we do on the landscape as game and as the population demands. So I have no problem pulling back on what I you know how many hunts I run out here. But there, the other outfitters around here, that I who knows? I, I I can't speak for them. I I I know I I watch on social media what they talk about on you know how many hunts they're going to run. But are they supposed to? I mean, how many? What critters are there for their hunters? Because that that don't that's only sustainable for so long. You can only book hunts like year after year after year and have like fifty percent success rate. And still continue to book hunts. It doesn't happen. So what's the state going to do? I think the state should have, you know, pulled 
at least the second bird opportunity out of Northwest Kansas, but you just don't sell tags. I don't know. There needs to be a conversation in there about predators at some point, because the other thing that we didn't have back in the day of our winter wheat and all the other broad scale habitat, we were just coming off of a massive, uh, mange epidemic in our coyotes. There was very few coyotes in many areas because the mange had wiped so many animals out. And at one point we had a dis, uh, distemper outbreak or something. I don't know. I don't know if it was distemper, but the raccoons just went away for several years. You didn't even see, you, you would see occasional raccoons, but they just went away. That ain't the case now. Like I said, the raccoons are plague proportions. Plague proportions. They're just, it's insane the number of raccoons. And and we can have that conversation later about why. We've got milder winters. We got more corn on the landscape. We got fatter raccoons. Females are giving birth to six pups. And, I mean, a full litter. And those things are surviving. Every single one of them survive. I absolutely laugh and love the discussions I hear about some of the, the people talking about, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, coyotes don't eat a lot of deer. You know, coyotes really, you know, coyotes eat a lot of raccoons and, and everything. I, I'm like, oh, please, dear Lord, please, please, please identify a place where the coyotes are hammering the piss out of raccoons because I want to transplant, you know, in the scientific world, translocate. I want to translocate those rac- those coyotes out here. Please, dear Lord, give me some coyotes that want to eat raccoons. It ain't happening raccoons walk around out here with impunity. They just, they, they don't care. Nothing's touching raccoons. Um, anyway, so all these things are going to come up in a, in a broader, deeper discussion at a later date. But I say all this because it's just, it's just a bummer, man. I'm so thankful that we're doing what we're doing for habitat on the landscape. Because if we weren't, I know for a fact that our properties would be just like so many that I drive by. Again, I don't, I, I work with three primary landowners out here. Um, total of about what I, I call relevant acres. I've said this before, the acres where there's tens of thousands of acres that these landowners own. But when we look at where you're likely going to run across a deer, a turkey, a pheasant, okay, those relative acres. I, I love the people that are like, oh yeah, 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 I manage. Well, like for instance, out in Colorado, when I was uh, managing the pronghorn hunting cooperative, I could legitimately, excuse me, I could let burp. I could legitimately say I was managing 50 or roughly 50,000 acres in Eastern Colorado across two units, unit 120 and 119. All right. Because each of the ranches and the families I had was uh, one, two, well, there was three main families, but the third family had, uh, you know, like extended family, like other multiple family members that had their farms. So it was a legit 50,000 acres of relevant habitat. So when I said we manage 50,000 acres, that's, that was an honest statement because I could send you out across that 50,000 acres and you had a reasonable opportunity to find a goat out there and and fill a, a pronghorn tag out here somebody might lease 10,000 acres 
only a portion of that is going to be what I call that relevant acres. So for us, the relevant acres is about 6,500 acres of relative acre, re- rele- relevant acres on the landscape. Um, and it's pockets, you know, there's, there's a chunk of ground here, a chunk of ground there, a big chunk here, bunch of, you know, and so it's scattered across two different counties um, from Highway 36 all the way down to Bow Creek. If anybody knows where that is, that's a big chunk. Of, that's a big, and it straddles basically right along that eastern portion of Norton County and the western edge of Phillips County. Okay, so that's a big chunk of real estate. So I'm driving these roads a lot. And by the way, thank you, Joe Biden, for the lovely $4. And I got fuel, I filled up the truck tonight. 25 gallons of fuel. Was it 25 gallons? 25 gallons of fuel for 125 bucks. Good Lord. So start running. That's the other thing that's going to suck about this season. I can't go into it now. I'm not going to spend the time in it now. But I've got to. I've got to be judicious on what the hell I do, because there's no way I could afford to run these roads like I normally run them. You know, with the equipment and everything this year. But anyway, I'm driving by a lot of ground, neighbors' grounds, just just other landowners on the landscape, and you look out the window and you can see turkeys or deer or whatever or not. And that's the thing. That that's the point is the places where I know that get zero management. The places I know where the landowners have zero value for wildlife. I mean, they just don't it it doesn't it just does not show up on the radar screen. They're not there. The 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 birds are no longer there. They're just not there. And part of the the thing that maybe want to talk about that. And, and again, it's, it's too deep of a rabbit hole. Um, I just made some notes. It just, I, one of the neighbors, um, just took a bulldozer and pushed out, um, a portion of their property, a lot, pushed out the tree corridor, um, just, because they wanted to clear access. They just wanted more space along the fence line. They didn't want the trees near the fences because they were having a fixed fence. And so they just took the bulldozer and just pushed everything. I mean, just clean, just cleaned it out. And I'm like, the way that the real estate lies, the, the way the habitat was laid out, these were protected pockets where the deer would stage before coming out in the evening into the fields. These were the protected pockets where when the wind started howling out of the Northwest, the turkeys would just button themselves right back up into this little corridor and they would, this is where they would loaf the whole day. I mean, they might feed out my feet, you know, our fields one, you know, in the morning, or maybe they will be over on the neighbor you know, the adjacent neighbor on the next morning, and then maybe they'll be over on this actual landowners. You know, the, the birds will use a bigger area, but when the weather got bad and the wind got bad and it just got brutal, this was the place that the birds would take refuge. Gone. Gone. Pushed out. Um, uh, and uh, this is another one. Um <laughs> This was another topic that's going to be, and again, how many freaking notes do I have? The people that sit there and say, 
There's no way I'm going to come out and pay a landowner to hunt. Screw you. Because you're being naive. You're, you're, you're naive at best. Ignorant. If just downright. Just being a jackass. Because again, some of these people, you know, I, I sit and I, I listen to the talk that, you know, like, oh, I've, we've got friends. I, I, I want to just knock on a door and, and get permission to hunt. And I, I'm never going to pay because I shouldn't have to pay. And, you know, I, I, I didn't have to pay when I was young. I just, you, you, what happened to, you know, just being able to knock on doors and, and just being able to, you know, just go have a good time and hunt. And, you know, all, all these people leasing up ground and all, all these people, you know, buying up and all these, you know, locking up ground and everything. You know, you guys are just, you know, causing a problem and just... Okay, you can say what you want. But if a landowner has no value for wildlife habitat, what? I don't care if he's going to, he or she's going to allow you to hunt the property. If they just pushed out the chunk of real estate that held the, the turkeys, now what? If, if they just pushed out the chunk of real estate that was that was the corridor that you could actually put a tree stand and it was a natural funnel across the, the region and that was where you had your tree stand and you could kill a deer every year by just going up there and hunting a weekend in this one spot. They just pushed it out. It's gone. Your trees are no longer there. I'm glad you have a free place to hunt because a landowner doesn't care about wildlife. They have no economic value for it. So they're just, again, in this case, it, was, it wasn't it was anything critical. It was out of convenience. They pushed it out because of convenience. Trees aren't doing a thing for their cattle. The trees are a hindrance when it comes to cattle management. And the trees are a problem when it comes to fence maintenance. So I'm getting rid of them all. Push them out. I'll push it out, let it all come back into grass and whatever. Now, granted, it's a lot of brome back in there, so there's going to be a bunch of brome that comes back in. But the damn the problem is now all the disturbed ground, and this is the other thing that just drives me nuts, that all the disturbed ground that they just created, now it's going to be hemp, cheatgrass, freaking amaranth. It's just going to, it's, it's going to turn into stuff that's just, it's not even going to, it's going to help with convenience on cattle management, but it didn't even grow food for their cattle. It just was a convenience, and they just pushed out a chunk. Again, ha- having conversations with landowners this, this weekend, the number of people that are running cattle in their creek corridors now, what they call the waste ground, they're running cattle almost year-round in some of these places. Again, you you yeah, you can hunt for free out there. Guess what? You can see 300 yards from one end of the corridor or right down the corridor. There's nothing there anymore. Why? Because it's cheaper. No, not cheaper. They can make more money. Just put the cattle down in the creek bottom. Let them eat up all that ground down there. Because the field up here that I used to grow my triticale, the field up here where I used to put the sedan grass and, and turn the cattle loose, you know, out on the... I can actually make more money now putting that in corn and buying feed, buying, you know, corn stalks, corn bales, buying prairie grass, especially this after this year when 
I don't know, the, the, the federal government decided that, okay, everybody that wants to, you know, re-up their, their CRP ground has to mow everything down and bail it up in one fell swoop. So we lost all the nesting habitat there last year. And we've got marginal nesting habitat happen in many of those CRP fields this year because of the drought last year, but that was great. So they can actually make more money by clean farming summer crops and just putting their cattle in all the waste ground. That waste ground where you used to hunt for free to be able to knock on the door and hunt. Well, guess what? How many deer are you seeing down there now? How many turkeys are out there now? You sit there and you say you don't see as many deer and you don't see as many turkeys. You don't see as many pheasant as you did before. Yeah, guess what? There's changes on the landscape. If that landowner had an economic value for wildlife, you just damn well might see them actually considering wildlife as a factor on the landscape. I know one of the the the, the friend of mine that I work with that leases a bunch of ground in Nebraska. They pay a premium for that lease. But here's the thing. The landowner knows it. And by when I say the landowner knows it, the landowner knows that they're paying a premium. And so when they turn around and say, hey, we want to put a food plot here and we're going to fence the cattle out of it. He's like, not a problem. Go for it. Have at. We want to put a food plot here. We need to be, have the, We need to make sure the cattle are... We need to make sure... Not a problem. Absolutely. I'll work with you. And he does. Guess what? The land, what the, all, all the landowners I work with. Same thing. To various degrees... Hey, we need to do here. This is what I have a feel. How about how about I do this? How about I do this? yep, absolutely, let's do that. They have a value for wildlife. Why? Because either they're getting a paid a premium for it and a lease, or at least the landowners I'm working with, there there is an economic value for it. And quite honestly, some of the landowners actually hunt, and so there's an intrinsic value that they want to see success on the landscape. They want to see critters on the landscape like they used to. So they want to have portions of their manor, uh, uh, properties still managed for wildlife. <clears throat> but even still, even still, there's limitations. People cutting cedars out of pastures. I understand why. But I just watched one property where, let's say it's 160 acres. There's an 80 acre, 100, no, not 80. Oh, 40, 50, probably 40. I don't know. Anyway, um, there's a chunk of that ground that is quote unquote waste ground. And adjacent to that waste ground is a hillside that had a bunch of cedars on it. And then there was an old remnant uh, CRP chunk. It's not in CRP anymore. Um, But the cedars there, um, were very well developed and really weren't, I mean, there was grass all the way up to the edges of the cedars, the cedars that were growing in the CRP. I mean, hell the, the CRP grasses were growing right up to the cedars. I mean, there was no bare ground anywhere. Um, it was really, really good wildlife habitat. That was the place where, you know, when it got windy and cold, the quail and pheasant would pile in, in those cedars and get out of that deep snow and, and get out of the wind. It's where the deer would bed down on the south side of those cedars, out of the wind, out of the cold, in the sun, um, and, and just get some 
you know, just some protection there. And quite honestly, in the summertime, you'd see that's where they would pile in and, and just bed down in the shade and, and just get out of that heat, get up in those areas where there was still breeze moving across the hillside, but they could bed down in the shade of those, you know, those big cedars. And it was great. And, and it provided a visual screen um, for a hunting purpose. It provided a visual screen from accessing, from coming into the property. There's no way into the property without skylining yourself, the way this this kind of lays. And so it was a way to, to come in to the property, use those cedars as a visual um, screen, and you could access a whole bunch of areas where you could get down in there and actually conduct a hunt very efficiently. Now, on the other side, on the, the cattle pasture side, oh, yeah, 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 there were cedars you know, growing up and encroaching in on the grassland chunk out there. And yeah, there's a stock pond at the bottom of the drainage. And so absolutely an argument can be made that, you know, cedar encroachment on that short grass prairie is sucking moisture. Now, again, there was no bare soil. The, the buffalo grass and, and the, you know, the grasses were growing right up into those cedars. So it wasn't a situation where he had bare soil, but yeah, you can make the argument that the cedars are sucking up a lot of moisture to where um, maybe that stock pond is not holding as much uh, water as it normally would on a normal year uh, because the cedars are sucking that and just, you know, evapotranspiration, um, you just, you're just losing water. So yeah, on the, on the, on the grassland side, absolutely hack those cedars down. They're, they're probably not doing you any good and they, yeah, they're not doing you any good. And most likely they probably could be doing you bad. You know, they're, they're, they're causing a negative impact. But the cedars on the other side, no, they're, no, they're, I mean, they were literally, there was, there was literally no negative impact from a, uh, from a, in my opinion, from a range management standpoint, but also, especially from a wildlife habitat standpoint, they were great. Wildlife habitat standpoint, they were great. But from a range management standpoint, I don't know if you could really articulate any loss. Hired somebody to come in and, and remove the cedars, and before they could really plan and, and get a game plan of where they wanted to start and what they wanted to do, whoop, guy came in there. He was good. He knows what when when a landowner says I want I want you to remove the cedars out of my pasture. He's going to remove the cedars out of your pasture, which means every cedar that he can drive up and cut went gone. And guess what? The area that you can pull your equipment in is where the wildlife habitat is. So what's the low hanging fruit? Every one of those cedars in the wildlife habitat corridor gone first that those are the first ones to go and then he finally did he got out he got the whole property he got all the cedars out it's just a bummer man because it that's even a land that's even a landowner that does value wildlife habitat and if we'd had a chance it was just it was just it was just unfortunate miscommunication and timing and gone, gone, gone. To where now there is no visual screen to access that property at all. Um, there's very little shade anywhere on that property now, and, and some of this was on a southwest, fa- south and, and southwest facing slope. So 
that was the only sh- and, and it was good betting cover because of the tall grasses and everything else. So, but it was you, they could get in there, catch a breeze, lay in the shade. Now there there is there is none. There is no shade up there. So in the middle of the summer when it's 105 degrees and that sun is beating down on that south facing slope, there ain't going to be a stick and critter in there. It's we're going to have to have a conversation at some point. And again, and this is a broader conversation for a later date, but we sit there and talk about, you know, all hunters are conservationists and it's all about the conservation and, you know, but is it? Because the people that sit there vehemently, just adamantly, I mean, just with angst and just anger and venom and just, 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 ah. Oh every negative word you can think of. I I still to this day have those conversations with people that are just pissed off at me because, you know, oh, you're just, how dare you, you know, run hunts and and provide an economic incentive to the landowners to where they want to have managed hunts. If you're not providing, if you're not helping provide a value, like a real value, to a landowner for their wildlife habitat and their wildlife resources, why? Why are they going to manage deer habitat for you? Why why are they going to grow turkeys for you? You're not, you've said that you're not going to pay a dime. You'll never pay a dime to be able to hunt. You just want to knock on a door. Okay, fine. Well, screw you, man. It's getting expensive to run herbicide. Look at just a gallon of freaking glyphosate now has gone up. I what is it? What do they say? Fifty five bucks a gallon. That's insane, man. I'm I'm going running through the numbers. Herbicide now, um, all the herbicide that I use is running anywhere between fifty and seventy five bucks a gallon. That's like what triple what it was last year. Nitrogen fertilizer, if you want to fertilizer, you know, put some fertilizer on some crops or what, you you want to grow a corn food plot, you want to put some fertilizer on that, good, (laughs) have fun with that, baby. The prices of things have gone, diesel, you want, how much diesel does a tractor consume? You're bitching and complaining about, you know, I'm bitching and complaining about putting $4 and change, almost $5 diesel in my truck just to recreate and drive around the place as you, you know, as some of these people that they come to hunt out of state driving, pulling in with an $80,000 brand new freaking truck. And you're going to sit there and tell the the rancher has bailing wire holding the freaking door of his truck together. And you're going to say, I'm never going to pay a dime. You got an $80,000 freaking brand new freaking Raptor or what, what, I don't know, freaking the economic differences are stark, people. They're the ones that have to carry the banknote. They're the ones that have to pay the taxes on it. They're the ones that have to fix the fence. They're the ones that have to put diesel and all their equipment and everything else and, and run around the fields. And when they can make more money by taking that field and putting it in corn or soybean and nuking it with with herbicide and, and clean farming it, and then just go ahead and turn their cattle out on the waste ground areas where the pheasant, you know, all those pheasants that you like to, to chase, you know, all the deer that you like to hunt and all the turkeys that you like to, to, to be able to hunt, all, all that ground where it's all now just grazed down to nothing. If there's no incentive 
especially an economic one in these days. Why in the hell are they going to manage their ground for you? Why do you expect that you're going to see more land? You're going to still see the same level of deer and turkeys and pheasants and quail and oh my on the landscape as you always have. I understand that your job at the insurance company, at at the at the job site, at the construction site, at the law firm, at the at the whatever you know, at the hospital, hasn't changed in the last five, ten, fifteen years. Life out here has. If you're not sensitive to that, man, don't bitch and complain when you don't see many, as many critters running around in the landscape. Especially when we have these drought years. So there's a lot of topics to discuss. There's a lot to tackle. But the, the relative point for you guys that I wanted to start off with and I wanted to hit, I know there's a lot of folks wanting to come out to Turkey Hunt. There, I've, there's... I, every year people contact me and ask, you know, how's it looking? How's it looking? How's it looking? Well, it is early. Okay. That full qualification, it's early because it's early because I just taught all the things that I just talked about a little while ago about the winter wheat changes and the crop, you know, things have been happening later. So I fully expect more of our turkeys to, to show up on the fields and more of our gobblers to be out strutting and, and, and carrying on. All I'm saying is this, right now, what I'm seeing in areas where you would see 20 to 30 hens and five to eight mature gobblers out there strutting with them, numerous places the past week, six to eight hens, one gobbler, maybe eight to 15 hens, three, four gobblers. Numbers are down. Numbers are down. So far, it looks like numbers are down. Um, and then again, like I said, places where I normally see birds, I'm just, I'm not seeing them. So if you're coming out to turkey hunt in Northwest Kansas, um, Number one, given the fact that you can buy them over the counter, quite honestly, it may not be a bad idea. If you're not, if I mean, that's the other thing too. As I tell people every year, guys, get out here and freaking preseason scout. A lot of the walk-in access areas are good when they have good habitat, when when they've got good crops growing around them. Last year, in a, a bunch of the walk-in, uh, you know, the, uh, there's places where I know that we're walk-in. All of the ag fields were planted in cattle and sedan grass for cattle, and cut and mo- and baled up, and it, it was literally a dry stock and dirt all winter, all fall, all winter, and all spring. There's not a there's not a there's not even a deer walking across that stuff right now. They've moved. They've, they they're going to have their home range. They're going to move to where the food in, in, is. So and then. Jeez, oh Pete, I, I, yeah, there we go. <laughs> uh, it is come. Oh man. Oh. <laughs> so, so it's come to my attention. <clears throat> vividly, it is vividly come to my attention that uh, apparently I say geez, oh Pete a lot. <laughs> so. 
I don't know if I should be thankful for these because a couple of one of you put somebody posted it on social media and then I heard it from a couple other people uh, at the ISE show in Denver and it was it just it's freaking hilarious. Now that I hear it, now that someone pointed out that I say Jesus Pete, every time I say it, it just it comes out like subconsciously. But as soon as it comes out my mouth, it just bare, it just, it's like a little, it's like a little bell goes in my brain. Oh my gosh. That's funny. That's hilarious. So anyway, geez, oh Pete, um, we haven't even talked about running, running water. I mean, hell I posted on social media. That's literally what I've been doing. I, I got all my water tanks, not all, almost, almost all of my, my wildlife water tanks running that I, that I, that I have to run. Um, but seriously, I'm looking at other places and I'm thinking, geez, oh, Pete, I need to put a, I, I probably could run water in some of these places and just help out the critter use of our property because I've got the good food plots. We've got the good cover, but there ain't water for a long way. And so some of our critters are, have just moved to other areas of their home ranges or, or extend, extended their home ranges just so they can get available free water. So putting water back on the landscape, hopefully we'll get those, be able to give them a resource to come back and, and utilize some of our, um, our habitat stuff a little bit more effectively. But so yeah, I, would, I mean, running water right now. So even if the areas around your walk-in access or where you hunt or, you know, what your neighbors or whatever, or your landowners that you work with, or 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 knock on doors with, or whatever. If 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 the if the their portion of the creek bottom has dried up, um, yeah, pay attention. Where is water? Pay attention where your winter wheat is. Where's the good spring green up looking? And then um, go from there. And quite honestly, you know, I I tell I I say I I did I said you know come out here and preseason scout look for where the winter wheat is look to where what your water looks like what does your cattle look like do they have cattle in the river bottom in the in the creek corridor now um because a lot of landowners have pushed them there um but if you have not scouted before you're coming out maybe go ahead pack up you know get ready just load up just do what you're gonna do just load up but just maybe hold off on buying your license until you get out here we're not we don't have any covid crap to deal with so it's not like the governor's going to shut down turkey hunting you know this year but you might just hold off and you know don't buy your license until you figure out it, it, are there birds where you want to go like legitimately and if you did buy a license buy one or if you feel like you need to buy a license just buy one you can always get the game tag later the second bird later if you've got a bunch of birds out there but you know i've always tried out here to never shoot more than 50 percent of our mature birds and and the challenge with that is again i've got the outfitter that that hunts my fence lines uh, on one side i've got multiple you know families that have you know you know whether their kids or you know their family or whatever wants to come hunt they're hunting out here too so you got to try to juggle all that and say okay well how many how many birds are other people going to shoot? How many can we shoot? And is there even enough? Um, because if you don't, if you shoot every last mature bird on the landscape, you know, 
we can have a disagreement on the severity of it, but there's enough research out there that suggests that, yeah, if you, you whack the piss out of your mature birds, your breeding efficiency goes down, and maybe you can actually be artificially exacerbating the reduction of your turkey population in your area just because you're over over harvesting your mature birds, two-year-old birds and, and older. So I, I always try to, to stay well within that 50%, never taking more than 50% uh, any on any given property. So keep that in mind as well if you're out there. You know, in years past where you've had five to eight, ten different gobblers running around, maybe you go boom, 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 you know, when you and your kid or you and your buddy go out there and whack a bunch of birds and, you know, you whack your two birds each and then go home and have a blast. Maybe you get out there this year and there's like literally two gobblers on the landscape. Do you shoot one? Or do you just kind of give them a pass this year? They're literally today running one of my water uh, tanks, pop over the hill, and sure enough, there's birds there. I'm like, sweet, turkeys. Pick up the binoculars. Nine hens, one gobbler. That's it. I'm like, oh my. That that Typically, when you come over the hill in this particular spot and, and you daylight, and if there's birds there... It's like 30 to 50 birds. It's just like this, it just the whole place just erupts. So I know that we've got other birds, you know, scattered across the property, but I'm just saying in that particular spot, there should have been a hell of a lot more than that. If I go over there during season, I've got game cameras up now. I'm going to um, get a, I've got enough cameras across the property where I can get a good survey um, of what, you know, I, I can get up on a hilltop and I can listen. And I can hear the gobbling, but I can't lay eyes because of the way the, the property is, you know, the terrain. I can't lay eyes on the birds. So I can hear them, but if I drop down in to physically count them, I've got to pick one group or another. And I just, so I use game cameras to give me a better uh, survey of the property. Um, but let's just say for argument's sake, I go over there and... That's it. We've got nine hens and one gobbler. Guess what property's not getting hunted this year? Now, again, I have no control over on my neighbors. I know my neighbors hunt, and they've got kids that they want to shoot a bird. So if all of a sudden that bird, that flock of birds gets called over the, over the fence line, I, I know for a fact they're not even going to bat an eye. They're not even, they, oh, no, no, there's, there's birds. Uh, there'll, be, there'll be other birds. Uh, boom, dead bird. Well, Hopefully those hens can find either bread already or they can find uh, another gobbler somewhere later on and get bread. Because otherwise, that's how you wink out a population when all of a sudden you've got no more birds left. So if you're coming out, just keep that in mind. Um, Again, it's not everywhere. It's pockets. But just be cognizant of that. Uh, Because we are still running two birds in this particular portion of of the state. And we've got a lot of people that like to hunt out here because of that fact. Um, just might might want to be cautious about buying your tags and uh, racing out here. Um, take stock of what you got around. Anyway, <clears throat> I'm gonna kill it for now. I gotta get this up posted. I gotta get up in the morning. Uh, we had a windy day today. Wind laid down tonight. Heard some birds gobbling. Was able to hear a little bit this morning, but I think tomorrow morning's gonna be good. So I wanna. It's going to be a late night, but i got to get up. This is the time of year, man. 
late nights, early mornings, and hopefully a nap during the middle of the day, but we'll see. But uh, anyway, so I got to get up, start doing some monitoring, get ready for the first group of kids coming in, and then, uh, yeah. So next week, it'll probably be a very similar deal. I'll probably give, just, just give you an update of what, what we saw, what we, what's happening, the whole nine yards. And then um, after that, I should it should start to open up a little bit. And then, I, like I said, I've got guests that I'm, i got folks I want to chit-chat with, some different perspectives on some things to chit-chat with. And then we'll dive down into some of these rabbit holes on, and really pick apart some of these topics that we've been talking about. So anyway, all right. That's it for this week. Uh, thanks you. Th- I appreciate you, and I thank you for listening in. Um, as always, if you if you want to follow me on socials, it's most likely Instagram these days. Uh, that's where I'm mostly at. And then, um, yes, I've got some of those videos that I want to upload to Rumble. I just haven't had a chance to, you know, between the working in Colorado and then the Denver ISC show, and then now turkey season. I just it just whittling away time, so at some point I will get those videos up. Um, yeah. Yeah, enough rambling. All right. Thanks. Until next week, hope you have a great week, and we will talk to you soon. Thanks, everybody.